Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of 16-year-old Michaela Bali. Michaela had no history of behavioral problems, but in 2016, she ditched school and was never seen again. Despite having an incredibly detailed timeline of her whereabouts for most of that day, her case continues to stump investigators and frustrate her family, especially because it seems like the answers to this mystery are so close but just legally out of reach. This is the case of Michaela Bali. Michaela Bali was born on July 2, 1999, in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan. Michaela never knew her father, but she grew up with her mother Paula and eventually a younger brother and sister. Her maternal aunt and grandmother were also extremely present in her life. Paula would actually come out and say that Michaela was such a good kid that she's the reason that she had two more. Eventually, the family would settle in Yorkton. Yorkton itself was a pretty small town, with only about 16,000 residents at that time. Paula Bali worked as a program development consultant with Community Living Services Delivery. This is a branch of the Ministry of Social Services. She was a single mother to three kids, but by all accounts, she made it work just fine. By the year 2016, Michaela was 16 and in the 11th grade. And again, she just seemed like a really great teenager. She was close with her family and spent a lot of time playing the violin and piano. One of my favorite things that I read about Michaela was that she actually learned to play Happy Birthday on the accordion just to help her aunt celebrate her birthday. Michaela also loves the Hunger Games and enjoys playing League of Legends. She also really likes teaching her dog Angel new tricks. Another really cool thing I found was that she spent some time developing her photography skills. She even submitted some of her pictures to the local weather stations to be featured on the news. Michaela was a bit introverted and experienced some bullying in school, but it seems like she had a pretty solid group of close friends and was just all around a good kid. I could go on and on about the things that Michaela's friends and family have said about her, but this is just me looking from the outside in. Here is Michaela's mother herself talking about her daughter on the Let's Bring Michaela Bali Home Facebook page. We remember today a beautiful, sweet, loving, kind-hearted, generous, considerate 16-year-old girl. A respectful, sweet daughter, a kind-hearted, loving, and nurturing sister. A loving and kind granddaughter. And a sweet and caring niece. A humorous and concerned friend. A girl on the cusp of maturing and beginning her own life. She was learning the skills of life. Driving, banking, shopping, career contemplation. Michaela wasn't rushing through growing up and we still had giggles and music lessons and waiting to get her braces on her teeth and all the events of teenage years. I was in her room yesterday and glanced at her bookshelves and seen the pictures on her bookshelves the pictures of her being baptized when she was a baby, others with her siblings, laughter and smiles, and all those snapshots in my mind as well. 
There's a tenderness to some people we meet in life, and she was one of those. And all the more it breaks your heart to know that sweet vulnerability is a risk factor in a world that is sometimes marked by evil. Now, I know that sometimes describing a victim in these cases can feel dull or silly. Like, come on, of course everyone says that the victim is amazing. I've seen this sentiment expressed pretty much across all social media platforms and forums. For me, telling you what Michaela is like is important. I think it really gives us insight as to what is normal behavior and what isn't. This is extremely important in analyzing these cases. But it's not only that. When someone takes the time to talk about what a victim is like, it honors their life in a very special way. Like it or not, these podcasts, these stories, these features create a legacy of sorts for the people being discussed. These victims, these people, are so much more than what happened to them. I say it all the time, but they're real people with real lives. I really hope that when you listen to a victim's story, you not only remember the usually horrific circumstances surrounding their case, but also just them as people. Michaela should be known as more than just the girl that disappeared. She was so much more than that. All of the victims I discuss are so much more than that. With that being said, let's get into it. Monday, April 11th, 2016, the day before Michaela goes missing, seemed like any other school day for her. She and a few of her friends left the campus of Sacred Heart High School in Yorkton to get lunch at a local fast food restaurant. Her friend Shelby remembers Michaela talking about wanting to go on vacation with her family to Regina, or possibly Saskatoon. Shelby also remembers trying to ask Michaela about this boy named Josh that she'd been kind of gushing over, but Michaela didn't respond. Despite this, her friends do report that she seemed completely fine at lunch, but the teacher of her Christian ethics class would later state that Michaela seemed upset during class. It was after this that Michaela's behavior became a little unusual. That afternoon, Michaela texts her friend Oksana asking her for a ride to the bank in the morning, saying that it was really important. Between 5.30pm and 6pm, Michaela calls her bank three times. She checks her account balance and transfers $25, presumably from her savings account to her checking account. Michaela then texts a few more people. Unfortunately, the exact content of these messages has never been released to the public, so we only have some vague descriptors. But basically, she texts her friend Amy saying she needed help. But when Amy asked why, Michaela never responded. She then texts her friend Shelby about a boy whose name has never been released. She also tells her that she was feeling bad for someone and had been crying. Michaela also texts her ex-boyfriend saying that she's unhappy and thinking of visiting Regina for a few days. But in addition to all of this communication with her friends and her ex-boyfriend, Michaela's mother reports that she spent a good amount of time that night practicing her music for a big upcoming recital. On the next morning, Tuesday, April 12th, Michaela got up and did her hair and makeup in the bathroom with her mother like she did most mornings. They discussed their plans for the day and life in general. Paula says that there was absolutely nothing out of the ordinary about this conversation. However, on this day, Michaela does bring a backpack to school instead of her normal purse. She also sends a pretty frantic set of texts to her friend Oksana. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. 
I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The following timeline for this day, the day Michaela went missing, would only come after months of tracking down messages, witnesses, and video surveillance footage from the area. But this timeline is absolutely crucial to her case. So stick with me. At 6.41 a.m., Oksana gets a text from Michaela. Can you take me to the bank? Oksana writes her back and says that she doesn't think the bank is open. So how can I take you to the bank? This is a text that Oksana says that she regrets to this day. Oksana would also tell police that Michaela told her she had about $5,000 in the bank, but bank statements would show that she didn't have anywhere near that amount of money in her bank account. Between 8.10 and 8.20 in the morning, Michaela's grandmother drops her off at school. The school Wi-Fi confirms that Michaela logged in at 8.08 a.m., I'm guessing that as they approached the school, Michaela's phone automatically logged into the Wi-Fi. But this timeline could also just be off by a few minutes here. Either way, we do have a solid confirmation that Michaela was at school that day, through both the Wi-Fi and video surveillance. At 8.21am, Michaela puts a binder into her locker. The police have determined there was nothing of value in this binder. At 8.26 a.m., Michaela is caught on video leaving the school through the back entrance. This was kind of staggering to me at first. Having grown up in the U.S. public school system, it seems to me like all the entrances and exits are really guarded. But after doing a little research on this, it seems like not all schools or countries operate like this. As we'll learn, it seems like the kids can pretty much come and go from the school as they please with little adult intervention. Ultimately, no one would be notified that Michaela didn't show up for her classes that day. When Michaela does miss one of her classes, her ex-boyfriend sends her a text asking why she wasn't there. It's unknown if he ever received a reply. But we do know that by the time he sent this text, Michaela was already across town. Between 8.30 and 8.40 a.m., Michaela is spotted on surveillance video walking eastbound on Smith Street West, from the intersection of Smith Street West and Gladstone Avenue North. This was the largest road that would lead Michaela into an area with many surrounding businesses. At this time, she's caught on camera near the Super C convenience store, going along the railroad tracks until she leaves the frame. At approximately 8.30 a.m., Michaela enters Terry's Pawn and Bargain on 3rd Avenue. She approaches the owner, Terry Hedden, as he was doing his morning opening duties and she asks him to look at two silver rings. Terry declined to make an offer on Michaela's rings. 
he says they just weren't worth enough for him to make an offer. He adds that Michaela was quiet, but she didn't seem like she was upset or in any type of distress. From here, Michaela goes to the TD Bank. She's seen on surveillance video at 8.51 a.m. She appears to be talking to someone on the phone while waiting for the bank to open. At 8.55 a.m., she ends the call and approaches a teller after the bank is opened. She proceeds to withdraw $55 from her account, keeping the account itself open. Now, I don't know exactly what type of account Michaela had with TD Bank. But after a quick look at their account options on their website, it appears that their standard checking accounts do require a minimum balance to stay open. So if this was the case for Michaela's account, I think it's pretty interesting that if she was so pressed for cash that she's trying to pawn her jewelry, that she didn't drain her account entirely. Again, I could be totally wrong here. It's possible she had a totally different account in 2016 that isn't available now. It's also possible that she would need an adult to assist in closing the account. But I couldn't help but make a note of that here. From the bank, Michaela heads south and is caught on video walking past the home hardware store. She's walking towards a combination Tim Hortons and Wendy's. There are two cameras in this restaurant. At 9.11 a.m., Michaela is seen purchasing a coffee and sitting in a booth across from the glass counter facing away from the main entrance. She sits at the booth, drinks her coffee, and checks her phone a lot. She also looks up and glances at the front door several times, as if she could be waiting for someone. At one point, she appears to take her phone apart and put it back together before using it again. Now, this part kind of got me. You know when your phone just isn't working right, or maybe you just feel like it's not working right and you'll turn it off and turn it back on again? Or if you have an older phone, like possibly in 2016, you take the battery out and put it back in again? I wonder if that's what Michaela was doing here. Maybe she was waiting for someone who wasn't texting her back and assumed her phone wasn't getting the messages and tried to fix it. Or maybe she was just nervous or cleaning the case. Again, we don't know, but I thought it was worth talking about. It's also worth noting here that in this video, we get a pretty decent glance at Michaela's backpack. Now, in articles, I've seen it described as being stuffed full of things but that's not what I see in the video. It definitely looks like there's things in the backpack, but it looks bottom heavy with the top looking pretty empty to me. If you've ever used a backpack as a carry-on for a flight and stuffed it full, you probably know what a stuffed backpack looks like. And that's just not what I'm seeing. Of course, I will have the surveillance videos of Michaela available on my website so you can take a look for yourself. But again, there's so many little things in here that are worth talking about. At 9.23 a.m., Michaela leaves the restaurant through the main entrance slash exit. But then she comes back inside and goes out the other exit she'd been facing. Again, almost like she's looking for someone. From here, she walks north, back past the home hardware store until she's out of view. At 9.42 a.m., she reappears on this video and goes back into the combination Tim Hortons and Wendy's. As she's walking in, it appears that she is on the phone with someone. She sits in a different booth this time, closer to the window and now facing the main entrance slash exit. Her call ends and she again appears to just be looking at her phone, possibly texting or just scrolling. At 10.03 a.m., she puts her headphones in. 
and at 10.12 a.m., she texts her friend Shelby, quote, Hey, I need some help. Shelby unfortunately left her phone at home that day, so she never responded. But about 20 minutes later, Michaela texts her again, this time saying, quote, Never mind, I figured it out. Over the next 30 minutes or so, Michaela is on and off her phone six times. At 10.25 a.m., she grabs her bag, talking on the phone, and leaves the restaurant. But less than two minutes later, she comes back in and sits at the same booth. At 10.39, she's on the phone again, and kind of just looking around. At 10.43, she's off the phone. Now, the police wouldn't actually release this next piece of information until almost three years later. But Michaela approaches a woman at a nearby booth and asks her for help in booking a hotel room. This woman would later tell police that she was unsure if Michaela just needed money for the room or just someone of legal age to help her book it. Either way, this woman tells Michaela no. This entire interaction only lasts about 45 seconds. Michaela then goes back to the booth, puts her phone to her ear for like one to two seconds before putting it away. She then grabs her bag and again either makes or receives another phone call and walks out of the restaurant. At 11.35 a.m., Michaela is seen on video surveillance again walking towards her school. At the same exact time, she sends Shelby a text saying, quote, I'll see you at lunch. It's about a 25-minute walk from this area to the school, and she's back on their surveillance by 11.59 a.m. She doesn't actually have any lunch, and I don't think she ever met up with Shelby. Instead, she talks to two students and tells them that she plans on taking a bus to Regina, which is about two hours away. But just two minutes later, at 12.01 p.m., Michaela is caught on camera walking out of the school once again. I think this part is really telling. Now, again, I don't know how schools in Canada work, but Michaela wasn't a troublemaker. She didn't ditch school. She didn't do drugs. She just didn't do things like this. So even if students were granted more liberties to come and go as they please at this school, this seems so out of character for her. I mean, who goes back to school after ditching classes in the morning? Why come back? Why not just stay away? Was she trying to get to Shelby since she wasn't answering her phone? Was she just bored? I wish we knew. From here, Michaela walks back towards this business area and goes to the Trail Stop restaurant. This is attached to Yorkton's bus depot. Between 12.15 and 1 p.m., she orders and eats poutine. Cheryl McDougall remembers working that day. She confirms that Michaela ate alone, but she admits that she did go on a break for a bit during this time, so she can't confirm if anyone came in to meet Michaela. However, she does say that Michaela looked totally normal and was on her phone quite a bit. Michaela then goes next door to the bus depot and asks when the next bus is leaving. It's unknown if she asked about a specific destination, but the employee tells police that when she told Michaela the next bus wouldn't be there until 5 p.m., she declined to buy a ticket. Michaela then leaves the bus depot and is not captured on video surveillance again. It's unknown which direction she was headed in. This is the last confirmed sighting of Michaela Bali. At 3.40 p.m., Michaela's grandmother Margaret is waiting for her in the parking lot of her school. Eventually, she goes inside to ask her teachers if they knew where she was, but they tell her that they hadn't seen her for most of the day. 
Now, Michaela actually had a violin lesson at 4 p.m., so her grandmother assumed that she probably just went to the lesson early. But once she confirmed that Michaela wasn't there either, she knew something was very wrong. This was extremely out of character for Michaela. And after all, she spent most of the night before practicing for this upcoming recital. It just didn't make sense that she would try to skip her music lesson. Margaret proceeds to drive to Paula's work to tell her that Michaela was missing. They of course try to call and text Michaela, but they get no answer. So they head right back to the school, and Paula literally starts screaming Michaela's name. And she's searching everywhere, including underneath every single school bus. Of course, they do consider that maybe Michaela did just run away. When they get home, Paula runs to the emergency slush fund in her house. It's a single mom. I, <laughs> I always have a slush fund in the house, right? A cash fund. And Michaela always had access to that. And so I remember running down the stairs thinking, if she ran away, that money's going to be gone. And it was all there. One of the pivotal points in my life, right, where you realize that this just isn't a teenager, you know, doing something senseless or, you know, that um, considering that something, you know, might have happened to her that was sort of inconceivable. So despite being pretty frantic about getting to the bank and trying to pawn these silver rings for cash... Michaela didn't take this money that was readily available to her. She also didn't take her makeup, phone charger, or acne medication. By 8 p.m., Michaela is reported missing. And unlike what we saw last week with the Amber Tuck Rowe case, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP for short, take this very seriously, and they get to work right away. By the time Corporal Kim Stewart gets the case the next morning, her team had already completed some pretty solid background work for the case, so she was able to hit the ground running. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot would come out over the years about this investigation. So let's talk about what we know today. By 7 a.m. the next morning, Michaela's phone had been turned off. Now at this point, I wouldn't blame you if you were literally screaming wondering who she was talking to on the phone in all of that video surveillance. Well... One of the most tragic parts about this case is no one knows. See, Michaela used social media apps like Instagram, Snapchat, and Kik to talk to people online. Due to U.S. privacy laws, it took the RCMP 10 months to obtain the records for her Instagram and Snapchat accounts. However, due to these same laws, they are still unable to trace who she was calling through the Kik app. To be honest, I'd never heard of this Kick app before researching Michaela's case, but from what I can find, it seems really similar to WhatsApp. It appears to basically be a way to message and call people through this app instead of directly through your phone. This way, of course, these calls and messages wouldn't show up through phone records. On top of this, one of the two kids that Michaela saw at lunch when she returned to school that day said that Michaela might have had a second phone with her. So, unfortunately, even if authorities were somehow able to bypass these U.S. privacy laws, it's entirely possible that Michaela was using a completely different phone anyway. It is so hard to have such a detailed timeline, to have so much video of Michaela using a phone and not knowing who she was talking to. But her friends did have some ideas of who it might have been. 
First is a man named Christopher. We don't know his age. Michaela brought up his name often as someone she was talking to online. Christopher was from North Carolina and primarily talked to Michaela through Instagram. Michaela told her friend Amy that Christopher was coming to Yorkton. Michaela's ex-boyfriend also confirms that she told him Christopher was coming to visit the province to see his mom in Saskatoon. Christopher was identified, and his home was searched by police. The police eventually clear him, saying that there is no evidence to believe that he was in Canada at the time Michaela went missing. Christopher would later tell CBC News via email that Michaela suffered from self-harm a few years back. And the only reason he was talking to her was to help her through that by encouraging her to look towards God. Christopher declined a formal interview. The next name Michaela's friends gave to police was Josh. No last name. The police interviewed pretty much every Josh they could find in connection to Michaela. Eventually, they find a Josh that lived about 40 miles south of Yorkton. He says that he would sometimes see Michaela at a youth group type activity through his church. They did talk for a bit, but it was kind of off and on, nothing serious. And they'd stopped talking about three years before she went missing. The RCMP would state they have no reason to believe that Josh knows anything about what happened to Michaela. Now, another interesting thing I want to note here is that around Valentine's Day before Michaela went missing, a bouquet of roses was sent to her at school. What's weird about this is she never told her friends who they were from. All we know is that they were ordered online, and police don't believe they have anything to do with her disappearance. But it makes me wonder if she was talking to another person online that felt serious enough about her to send her gifts like this or was possibly trying to groom her by sending her gifts like this. Just three weeks after Michaela went missing, the Yorkton RCMP hands her case over to the General Investigation Section. This is a dedicated unit that investigates major offenses. They do receive a lot of tips, but none that are super credible. Some kids report seeing Michaela with Oxycontin, but that was later confirmed to just be her acne medication. Someone reported a petite blonde running away from a man at a bus station. It wasn't her. The RCMP also searches the lake behind her school. They just wanted to eliminate the possibility that there could have been some tragic accident causing Michaela to drown in the lake. She wasn't there. But in July, something really strange happens. You see, Michaela's friend Shelby had actually still been sending her messages and videos over Snapchat. And in July, she notices that some of the messages sent to her were actually opened. The police could never confirm if these snaps were actually viewed. And they essentially have no explanation for this. The next year, Shelby would send Michaela a snap from their high school graduation. It would never be opened. A little sad side note here. Shelby and Michaela's other friends actually asked for their high school to put an empty chair for Michaela out at graduation but the school refused, saying they just didn't have room for one more chair. I can't imagine how it felt for Shelby and Michaela's family to be denied of this. My sister Alyssa's high school actually almost 20 years later granted my request to get her an honorary high school diploma. And it might sound silly, but that 30-second mention and that moment of silence was incredibly healing for me. Small things like this like putting a chair out for graduation, can mean the world 
to those who have a missing loved one. So reading this pretty much broke my heart into a million pieces for them. I also just can't imagine how it felt for Shelby to send that snap of what was supposed to be their high school graduation to Michaela's account, just hoping it would be opened like the others, hoping for just one glimmer of hope that her friend was still out there. But all activity on Michaela's social accounts past those open snaps has stopped. There's been no activity on her bank account either. One larger tip in this case that is often discussed is a witness from the bus depot coming forward to say that they saw Michaela with an unknown large man. This witness says Michaela was carrying two small white bags. She helped the police create a sketch of a tattoo she saw on the man's left arm. It was a cross with red flames coming off of it. The sketch was released to the public, but pretty soon a man came forward and said that he believed he was the man that they were looking for. He explained that he was at the bus depot that day, but after a long interrogation, the RCMP concluded that he was just holding the door for Michaela. He had no involvement in her disappearance, and his name has never been released. Now, you guys know I don't often express my theories in this podcast, but let's talk about what we know and what that could mean. We know that Michaela was acting differently on the day she disappeared. She took a backpack instead of a purse, and it appears to have been holding quite a few items. Obviously, she used her phone a lot that day to make several phone calls. To who, we just don't know. From the video surveillance we have of her at the Tim Hortons slash Wendy's, we know that she's looking at her phone quite a bit and also looking up at the door as if she was going to meet someone. Michaela told several people that she planned on making a trip to Regina or possibly somewhere else outside of town but she didn't buy a bus ticket. She didn't even take her makeup or cell phone charger. She left behind what I assume could be hundreds or even thousands of dollars that she had easy access to. To me, it doesn't look like Michaela planned on being gone long, but I don't think we can discount the idea that someone could have offered to pay her way. And we cannot overlook the idea that she possibly had a second cell phone. I think Michaela either truly thought she could meet up with someone, possibly leave town for a few hours and then be back in time for a music class, or she planned on taking an extended trip with someone who offered to pay her way. See, Michaela wouldn't need a cell phone charger if she had a second phone and second charger. She did her hair and makeup with her mom almost every morning. So maybe the risk of taking those items with her that morning was just too high. And maybe whoever she planned on meeting up with offered to pay for those items, including her acne medication. That's what people who groom children do. They assure them that everything will be fine, that they'll take care of it all, just like a parent would. They'll pay for your cell phone, pay for your nails to get done, take you shopping, or whatever else you want. The only missing piece to this puzzle is that Michaela seemed pretty happy. I didn't see a single report of a friend coming forward to say that she was stressed out over the music lessons, or that she didn't like her life at home. I mean, I think a 16-year-old voluntarily wanting to spend time with their mother isn't something we can overlook in this case. However, the opportunity that I see here for a groomer to get to Michaela is her self-esteem. Like I mentioned, she suffered from some bullying, presumably because of her acne. We also know that Christopher claims that she self-harmed in the past, 
Though, to be fair, her family does dispute this point. Another thing that I think could be a factor in this is Michaela's father. Apparently, Michaela told some conflicting stories about her father. She told one friend that he died, and another that she never knew him, but wanted to try to find him. It's possible she felt rejected by him. Another thing that I just can't get out of my mind in relation to this is that it seemed like Michaela was going out of her way to meet people online. This isn't victim shaming. This is what kids do. About a month before she went missing, Michaela posted on Snapchat saying, quote, Looking for Snapchat friends, because I have none in real life. Add me. Please don't be a greasy fuck and send me gross-ass nudes. Just looking for friends. Now, I don't take this to mean that she had any type of falling out with her friends. I feel like I say I don't have friends all the time, but that's just not the case. I think Michaela was looking for more friends, and probably not for some disgusting predator to talk to. But I think this type of message is kind of exactly what predators look for. Look at this sad, lonely teenager looking for friends. I'll be your friend. I can't believe people send you nudes. How disgusting. I'm not like that. I just want to be your friend. I'll be here for you when your other friends aren't. When I worked with kids in foster care, I had a few opportunities to read the messages they would get from online predators. And they weren't far off from this. Michaela was 16 and seemed like a great kid. But I do think it's possible that like a lot of people in general, but teenagers specifically, she probably suffered from some self-esteem issues. Even though she didn't seem to live a quote, high-risk lifestyle, I feel like this could have been an easy in for a predator to groom her. Of course, again, we just don't know. But there were some tips submitted that give Michaela's family a lot of hope that she could still be alive. Over the years, there would be a variety of tips about Michaela's whereabouts. A sighting in Washington State, a sighting in Portland. But according to Michaela's mother, there was one that really stood out to her. One tip that made her feel like this person really saw her daughter. And made the RCMP work with more urgency than any of the other tips. This comes from a man in Edmonton. This would be about an eight-hour drive from Yorkton. This man was at the Hyman Club in March 2019 for a pool tournament. When he went outside to smoke a cigarette, he meets a young woman and strikes up a conversation. He says this young woman said that she was staying in the area, but seemed very out of place. He said that this was typically kind of a rough area, so he was surprised that she seemed very sweet and naive. He didn't think much of it at the time, but in August, he saw a picture of Michaela on social media and thought she looked familiar. After a bit of digging through the family's Facebook page, he knew that the girl he saw that night was Michaela. This man contacts Michaela's mother and the police. They both spring into action. Paula flies to Edmonton to put up flyers and ask around. The RCMP gets to work trying to pull surveillance from the club and the surrounding area. Now, the club did have cameras, but only on the inside. And unfortunately, the footage was dumped after 60 days. Ultimately, no footage was recovered from the club. And the last I read, the RCMP was still trying to get the footage from the surrounding businesses. But the RCMP has not ruled out this sighting like they have most of the others. Unfortunately, this is pretty much where Michaela's case is today. 
This is another one of those cases, you guys, where it feels like we have so much information. We can track Michaela's movements on the day that she went missing almost down to the minute in some instances. Someone knows something. We just need them to come forward. The police refuse to speculate as to what they think might have happened to Michaela Bali. The RCMP and Michaela's family address the reality that it's likely something terrible happened to Michaela on the day that she went missing. But they hold out hope that she's still alive. A spokesperson for the RCMP would state, quote, Do we have suspicion that something happened to Michaela that wasn't good? After all this time, I would say yes. Do I believe Michaela is out there, alive, and doing well? She could be. Michaela's mother has discussed the possibility that her daughter might be a victim of sex trafficking, though the police say that they have no evidence to believe that this is the case. Above all, Paula Bali insists that her daughter did not leave and stay away on her own accord. The RCMP says that they continue to follow up on every lead they are given about Michaela, and they estimate the number of officers to have worked on this case to be in the thousands. The Bali family continues to hold annual vigils for Michaela. Paula Bali took an extended leave from work to look for her daughter. She spent over $45,000 looking for Michaela, and her family has put up over 6,000 missing persons posters in Canada. Which brings me right to our call to action. First, I want to play for you an audio clip of Paula Bali speaking directly to her daughter. This was posted on the Let's Bring Michaela Bali Home Facebook page during last year's vigil. So, Michaela, if by some reason, some miracle, you are listening to this podcast right now, this is for you. I wanted to address Michaela today, too. And I want to say to Michaela, Michaela, if you can hear this, honey, run for home. Where we are always searching and looking for you. You'll always be met with the most open arms and the biggest hugs. No matter what has happened, you are always welcomed home. You're a survivor. You're missed beyond measure and loved beyond what words can ever be expressed. I can't tell you how our world has been turned upside down by your absence. The despair and tears and gut-wrenching grief and fear. But it doesn't end, this nightmare. If only I could reach out to you, hug you, protect you. Second, there is an ongoing GoFundMe created by Michaela's family for case expenses. As always, that will be linked in the episode description and on my website if you are able and feel compelled to donate. Last but not least, our go-to call to action. Share Michaela's picture. It's been five years since she went missing, and she'd be 22 years old now. It may seem like it's been a long time, and the odds are no doubt not in our favor here. But crazier things have happened. Michaela could very well be out there somewhere alive. Let's keep those tips coming in. If you have any information about Michaela Bali, or if you think you see Michaela Bali, please call your local police or 911 in an emergency situation. There is currently a $40,000 reward being offered for her safe return. As a reminder, Michaela Bali was only 16 years old when she went missing. She is a white female with blue eyes. 
At the time of her disappearance, she was 5 foot 2 inches tall, weighed 114 pounds, and had long ash blonde hair. She was wearing blue jeans, a burgundy jacket, a teal infinity scarf, embroidered burgundy suede boots, a ruby gemstone ring, and a blue plaid backpack. Her right earlobe does have a tiny scar on it. But, as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. Hey guys, welcome to our secret after show moment. If you know, you know. Let's talk about what's been going on. First, I want to say sorry if there's been like a weird jump in audio quality or like a weird difference in audio quality. The truth is, I've been experimenting with some different microphones. And after a lot of experimentation, I've come back to my exact format that I've been using for quite some time now. I am still learning how to master this whole editing podcast thing, so thank you for bearing with me. I think I literally got one comment, but I still feel like I needed to address it. It hurts me when I can't be consistent, and these past few episodes have been a little different. At least I hear it to be different. Maybe you don't hear anything at all, but I I just felt like I needed to say something. But I am back to my old sure, and I am so excited. I actually got some help from the amazing Polly, who um, she works on the Jensen and Holes Murder Squad podcast. She's a producer there. And I messaged her over Instagram, and I was like, Polly, help. I don't know what's going on. My mic is failing me. Um, And long story short, it wasn't plugged in tight enough. I kid you not. I, I kid you not, guys. On top of that, as you guys know, last time we had a secret after show moment, my air conditioning was down. Um, That was one of the hardest times in my life. Uh, July slash August here in Arizona is extremely hot and I wasn't able to conduct really any family interviews. Um, I like, I mean, I could record audio in that temperature, but the thing was like my brain just wasn't working right when I tried to. Like I would lose my train of thought. I would forget my questions. It was really bad. So I wasn't able to really conduct any family interviews during that time. So you've seen a little bit of lapse there, but I just want to let you know that the AC is back up and working. Actually, they gave me a brand new unit because my old one was from like the 70s. Um, But I am back to interviewing families and there are so many of those to come. On top of that, I have to say um, some of the biggest news that I have for you this week, of course, is I announced I have a brand new podcast. Oh, I'm going to start crying, you guys. 
Um, I've been working on it for over a year now. It feels like forever ago that I started on this, but essentially I am working with Spotify and Parcast, and we have created a brand new podcast called Disappearances. Now, this podcast does exclusively talk about missing persons cases. We don't really deal with murders or anything like that. It's all about exploring why people go missing and the effects that that has on people left behind. I am honestly so excited. I got to listen to the first episode and it sounds so good. I feel like I'm, you know, like uh, tooting my own horn here or whatever, but I was I was honestly nervous. I'm not going to lie. I was nervous. Um, I am so used to having complete control over everything I do in the true crime space from my social media to this podcast that is still completely solo. The giving up that control was really hard. But also, I wanted to see what I could do with such an amazing team. I mean, you guys, it is Spotify. It is Parcast. These are huge names in this industry. So I really wanted to see what I could do with this whole team behind me. And I wanted to listen to their ideas and try something new to try to help these cases. So it is pretty different from Voices for Justice with that same core advocacy in mind. So I would love if you went and checked it out. It is called Disappearances, and it is available only on Spotify. But that's a lot of what I've been doing lately. I have honestly been super busy. I work pretty much all day, every day, but that's okay. That's what I'm here to do. I choose to do that. Um, of course, I do take time for myself. I am not trying to encourage that hustle culture that I believe can be toxic sometimes. Um, I just have a lot of passion projects right now that I'm honestly excited to work on. So I am continuing to work on them pretty much in all of my free time. Um, but yeah, that's what's been going on with me. I hope that you guys have had a great week or month or however it's been, however long it's been since I last talked to you in our secret after show moment. But as always, if you do enjoy this secret after show moment, please let me know on social media. Sometimes I'm not sure if anybody listens to these. Maybe it's just my own personal diary. But either way, I am going to continue to do them because they make me feel better and I like to be more candid with you guys in this space. It is refreshing to not read from a script, which, you know, to be fair, is vital in these cases. Otherwise, you would never get the correct information from me. My brain just can't hold stuff in like that. Um, but yeah, I like being unscripted and I like talking to you guys. And that's kind of my way to do it without adding any type of uh, rambling banter at the beginning that can be annoying to people. And to be honest, takes away focus from the victim because the episode is all about the victim. This is our secret after show moment to talk about life and things and whatever I want to. Um, if there is something you want to hear me talk about in the after show moment, secret after show moment, I should say, um, let me know on social media. Totally open to that. Again, this is this is our little private moment together. So let's soak it in. Let's have some fun. And um, yeah, I, I'm going to stop rambling now. But I think like, like I said last time, um, as always, um, thank you for tolerating me. I love you. And I'll talk to you next time.